Today, we will be addressing some of the greatest challenges the modern American church is facing, what Christians should do about it, and why we can remain hopeful. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture, where we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the goal of exuding conviction and grace, truth, and love in our discourse. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Really honored that I have the opportunity to speak to you about these vitally important topics, and we have a lot to get into today. And topics that I'm really looking forward to, things I've been thinking a lot about recently and have had really good conversations with others about. Before we get into the bulk of it, I want to cover a few current events. So if you've listened to my episodes previous to this one, uh, you know I've spoken a lot about the policing debate currently in our country and what reforms are necessary, uh, what reforms are radical and would lead to nothing but despair in communities that are already struggling in other ways. Uh, well, we are seeing the effects of some of those radical policy changes and decisions already taking place in our country, in cities where they have taken moves to do things like dis- or defunding the police or disbanding their police, their police forces within their region. So this is a real headline. Out of the National Review, Minneapolis spends thousands on private security for city councilmen amid calls to defund the police. So you remember last week in an episode I talked about how In a society, when the police are defunded, it's not like security goes away. It just gets hoarded towards the people that can afford it. So the rich will still pay for their private security, and low-income communities will have nothing. So violence runs rampant while the gated neighborhoods continue to stay safe. So police don't go away. They just become privatized. We are literally seeing that take place in real time. Just a few weeks ago, we know that 9 out of 12 Minneapolis City Council members took formal action to begin the process of disbanding their police force as a city. And then uh, on Monday, this article comes out, Minneapolis has spent over $63,000 to provide private security for members of its city council. By the way, this is $63,000 of taxpayer funding, so paid for by the Minneapolis citizens that will not receive this security. I can't think of a greater display of corruption. Uh, $63,000 to provide private security for members of its city council, which has been outspoken in calls to defund the police department following the death of George Floyd. Andrea Jenkins in Ward 8, Philippe Cunningham in Ward 4, and Alondra Cano, Ward 9, are being provided security details that cost $4,500 a day, a city spokesperson confirmed to local outlet Fox 9. So this is wild, obviously. And again, it, it only goes to show more of the reality of what takes place in societies that take radical moves toward policing. What happens if a nation creates a federal police force, it becomes very corrupted and begins to just implement the agendas of the dictatorship at up top. What happens on a local level when cities defund or disband their police forces? Well, police stick around. They just become privatized. The 1% gets them and the rest of society suffers from the violence. We're seeing this in another story, my second little current events. Another article, shooting surge in New York City amid disbanding of NYPD's plainclothes anti-crime unit. 
Shootings are surging this week in New York City with 27 incidents and 36 victims reported since Monday. This was last week that this article came out. The day the NYPD disbanded its plainclothes anti-crime unit, the Post learned on Friday. By comparison, the same week last year, there were only 12 shootings for the entire week. So what happened? Well, Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, said we are going to get rid of 600, I shouldn't say get rid of, he moved them to other departments, 600 anti-crime unit plainclothes officers that were instrumental in fighting a lot of the, uh, a lot of the organized crime in New York City. These officers were really instrumental in confronting that. Well, the week that they get pulled off the job, within a week, shootings more than doubled from this time period last year. We're seeing literally right away the effects of what less police have in a community. The last two weekends in Chicago have been deadly. Dozens and dozens and dozens shot. A three-year-old toddler killed this weekend. I don't know where the Black Lives Matter movement is on that. Nobody's calling out, but we're going to call it out on this show because life is life and it deserves to be protected and spoken up for. So the violence has to stop and getting rid of the police does not do it. So in the same time while these shootings are spiking, New York is implementing things like no bail that create a society where criminals are able to perpetually continue to reoffend, which does nothing for the community. And it also only enables the criminals, which is really sad, creates a codependent sort of society within the city. On top of that, Bill de Blasio also says uh, in, in the last few days that he is vowing to strip $1 billion, with a B, $1 billion off of the NYPD's budget. So we just need to pray for clarity and for rational and reasonable solutions. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to my uh, episode from last week regarding policing in America, please do so. We talk about a lot of common sense solutions uh, juxtaposed to these radical ones like I've just mentioned. Hopefully that can offer some insight into this issue. That is the some of my current events updates for the day. We'll have more in the coming episodes related to some of these topics and more, but I really want to spend the bulk of our time today talking about the status of the modern American church. And before we jump into this, I want to share a few disclaimers. First is this. I full well recognize that many of my listeners are not Christians, and I actually am incredibly grateful that I have the opportunity to speak to those that feel differently than I do and see the world differently than I do. I think it's a real honor to be able to engage in this conversation with people that disagree or are trying to figure it out or whatever it might be. So if you are not a member of the church, if you are someone that does not follow Christ, welcome. So thankful that you're here in this conversation with me. And I hope that today is actually enlightening for you. Second disclaimer is that when I talk about the modern American church, I think it's important to specify that I do not mean that all churches suffer through the challenges that I'm going to talk about today. Just like when uh, Paul wrote the different letters to the different churches and the epistles, each church struggled with different things. So it's important to recognize that the same is true today. Not every church has the same struggles, and I, and I recognize that. When I say modern American church, I'm really speaking to the culturally popular, non-denominational, general Protestant movement in the United States and the challenges that they are facing. So a lot of these I'm going to talk about specifically are the large megachurches, the celebrity pastors. Uh, That's kind of where we're going. Finally, I want to say this. 
all of these topics that I'm going to cover related to the church, I'm really going to kind of hone in on four observations that I've noticed. I want to share through the lens of love and of hope and of encouragement. Encouragement, excuse me. I am a proud member of a local church. I love the concept of the local church. I'm thankful that the Lord gave it to us. I'm thankful that Peter pioneered it. I'm really thankful for that because I see the beauty and the necessity of the local church, the importance of meeting together and not neglecting that, like Hebrews talks about. So everything I talk about, even moments where I may get a little critical— It's all for the goal of constructive building of the body so that we would all continue to grow to look more and more like Christ, myself, certainly. So I'm hopeful. I've heard a lot over the last few days that there's a lot of people struggling with hopelessness and feeling like, gosh, where do we go from here? It just feels like I don't know where to turn, and I have so many questions about the seasons that we're in, and I'm confused about my church, and there's a lot of people that are struggling with their even their faith right now and kind of the core tenets of this in this refining fire that we're currently facing. But again, that's why we go back to the purpose of this show, which is to talk that refining politics and culture, and certainly faith only happens when we're willing to have the conversation. We're clearly going through a refining process in culture right now. It's more time, it's time more than ever to press in and engage with these important topics. So those are a few disclaimers before we start. I want to really look to the scriptures on this today, because if we're talking about the church, we should look to the Bible. I want to really keep it as much to the Bible as possible, because this should be the base layer for all of our assumptions and perspectives about the world around us. This is 2 Timothy 3, but mark this. So Paul is talking. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, having ne- have nothing to do with such people, Paul says. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We see that big time today. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, those were the two uh, wizards, the sorcerers in the story of Moses in Exodus, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, and this is important, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, the persecutions I endured, Iconium, Lystra, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from who you've learned it. So it finishes this passage with all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do I read this whole passage? Because I believe that this is where we are today. Now, this begs the question, well, do you believe we're in the last days? 
I don't know. Jesus told me we wouldn't know, so I'm not sure. I have my own opinions about where we are in history, maybe vaguely as it relates to uh, Thessalonians and Revelations, etc., but uh, that's not my primary area of concern. I will say this, though. We're closer to the end than we ever have been. And this section of Scripture, as I look through history, we are living in a moment in time when this is illuminated more than ever. Because this is, this is the current challenge we are facing. Our church, culture, society is beginning to sway in ways in which they depart from sound teaching. They listen to uh, preachers and cultural figures that will tickle their ears but avoid offending them in order that we can live as, our, as if our primary goal is happiness instead of righteousness. And the church has embraced this measure or this message in so many different ways with self-help teachings and, and, and teachings that are all focused on ourselves and how we can accumulate the most happiness and self-insight and self-knowledge. It's, it's never-ending. And what's happened is that this focus away from righteousness, away from biblical truths out of fear of offending has created a church body in which today we are seeing forms of godliness but void of his power. We're seeing people that pursue spirituality, but not Jesus. People that will say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe he's the only way to heaven. We're seeing people go further, even within the church, and say, I'm, I'm even questioning the, the idea of hell. All of a sudden, seemingly overnight, although I would argue that we've been building to this for a while, churches in the mainstream are beginning to embrace theological doctrine that is counter to sound doctrine that the scriptures have designated and taught from day one. And it's seen uh, in movements like the Liturgist podcast and all these different groups that are focused on basically tearing down Christianity and starting new, basically creating a God in their image instead of allowing us to recognize that we are humans created in God's image and that our basis of morality always has to be the scriptures. So I want to categorize everything I'm going to talk about into four key observations. The first is this, something unfortunate that's taken place that I've noticed over the recent years, and especially uh, this last two, three years with the rise of identity politics and the rise of cultural confusion, the church has allowed the world to redefine key tenets of the faith. Love now in the world's eyes does not mean what the Bible says love means. God is love, and so therefore I cannot actually understand the act of love without an understanding of who God is. The world has attempted to redefine morality, to be something that's relative instead of something that is objective, because morality is inherently objective, otherwise it's not morality. Morality is a code of rights and wrongs. If that's subjective, then what type of code is that? If it changes with my preferences, then what type of code is that? But unfortunately, the church has refused to stand up and say there is one way, the way, the truth, and the life, and that anybody that wants to come to the Father and experience heaven has to come through that beacon of truth, that definition of truth and morality. There's only one. The church has allowed the world to redefine justice. Justice today means social justice where the world and the culture around us values equity instead of equality. What's the difference? Well, equality basically says we should, all, uh, we should all have equal opportunity. Nobody should be restricted an opportunity to succeed in this country. 
through our laws, through our doctrine, through whatever it might be. Equity says equity of outcome. It's a manufactured equality of outcome instead of equality of opportunity. So social justice emphasizes equity of outcome by manufacturing through practices like affirmative action to create a society in which People who society and the postmodern society has deemed the oppressed are elevated to these different positions, while those who have been deemed oppressors, the whole focus is on tearing them down. When Exodus 23 is very clear about this, that we should not show partial justice toward the poor. The justice should be a a blind thing that covers uh, everybody equally. We shouldn't show special favor to the poor, special favor to the oppressed in our justice system. But that's the very opposite of what social justice teaches today, where it's all manufactured. And again, like critical race theory, you're separated into oppressor or oppressed. True justice sees everybody on the same playing field. We are all equal in the sight of God. And for us to come in and manufacture equity of outcome would actually be playing God in a position that we are not allowed to. That is not our role. Second observation is this. The church has stayed silent on offensive truths out of fear of pushing people away, pushing people out of the seats, lowering their church attendance. So what will happen is that the church has only been willing to talk about challenging cultural topics that are culturally friendly. It's why you're seeing pastors over the last month that have never talked about politics at all before, all of a sudden focusing their last four sermons on social justice, systemic racism, equity of outcome, manufacturing society to create equity, etc. Now, not all these things are bad. For example, it's great that we are having a conversation about the pains that are still being experienced from America's history and from the history of slavery and from generations that have preceded us that have handled racial equality very poorly. So that's a good conversation to have. Now, again, I obviously think it it goes too far when you start talking about concepts like white privilege or collectivism, where there's an entire group of people that bear the sin for something that not all of them may have committed, or we start talking about the sins of the father being passed on to the sins of the son when that's explicitly anti-biblical. Obviously, that crosses the line, but what I'm trying to say is that standing up for biblical justice is awesome. The problem is there are a lot of pastors that are now doing it about a topic that culture's all on board on, but have never talked about it when it's been related to abortion, when it's been related to biblically defined marriage, when it's been related to gender identity, when it's been related to religious freedoms and the oppression of religious communities when it's been related to uh, international issues with nations that are allowed to uh, display human rights abuses. We're seeing the church pick and choose on what they're comfortable with taking a stand on, and it seemed like the popular American modern church has only been willing to have those conversations when it's an issue that all of culture is jumping in onto. There's this thought that I, I reflect on regularly you know, we, we talk about Eve as if she was the first sinner. You know, she ate the fruit in the garden and accepted the deception of the serpent, and therefore, you know, humanity's cursed down the line because of it. I, I really equate Adam as sinning in this instance, too, because he was passive. Passivity and not being proactive about seeking righteousness and truth is what led to this taking place. So as much as Eve was in the wrong, so was Adam, because he was passive about it. He let it happen. 
And what we're seeing today is that there's this quote I love. It says that a mist from the pulpit leaves a fog in the pews. A mist in the pulpit creates a fog in the pews. We're seeing pastors that are unwilling to talk about the offensive truths of the gospel because, again, the gospel is inherently, in a way, offensive. It's saying the way you're living is wrong. You need a Savior. You are broken. Jesus came and suffered death so that you could have eternal life. And it's the beauty of the gospel. It's the truth of the gospel. But when pastors will distort it or minimize it, when they'll diminish away from talking about that there is a reality of hell and Jesus came to save you from it. We rob the congregations of an opportunity to experience true life and true righteousness. When pastors are only loud and vocal on one cultural issue, but then they do nothing to stand up for other issues. There's a story that I heard recently of a girl who uh, went to some counseling and she had this conversation with this counselor, and she was considering abortion. She was in her early 20s, considering abortion, uh, was moving forward with that decision, was about 12, 13 weeks into her pregnancy. She was living with her boyfriend at the time. Well, the counselor finds out that this woman, this young lady, had been going to church regularly for three years, involved in a community, involved in a congregation, involved in a small group, was actively a part of this church body, not just a sideline participant or a sideline spectator, but an active participant and yet was still going to move forward with this abortion. Now, what, what's the major problem with this? Uh, well, there's many, but the biggest one, the biggest takeaway for me was how on earth could she have gone to that church for three years and never have heard that that is not a way to righteous living? The amen, awesome news about the story is that she chose to keep her baby, which is beautiful. But had she gone through with that abortion, she would have made a decision that would have left a mark on her for the rest of her life. And the one institution that's designed to tell her that that's not a good idea, the church that's designed to help her say, hey, please live in sin no more. You're going to experience so much more life from your decisions. Didn't do that, and it failed her. We're seeing that over and over and over again, and therefore there's this fog in the pews, and then people are confused as to why people are leaving the church. Third observation is this. The church has equated personal experience with biblical truths. This is big. The church has basically said that your experience, whatever you've experienced, is equal to the truths in Scripture. So I was having a conversation once with someone who said, well, I believe that uh, transgenderism is fine because God told me in my quiet time that transgenderism is fine, and, and however I feel inside is how he truly made me. Well, my question lovingly was just, hey, have you, have you done any looking into the Bible of what it says about that? And their response was, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't read the Bible because God speaks to me individually. Sadly, I think this is the reality of many people, especially young people in the church today, that say, I feel, so therefore it must be. I think, therefore I am. When in reality, every basis for our decision-making or identity should be informed by the Bible, the inerrant word of God. True objective truth. If I believe that God is who he said he was, if I believe that the Bible is true, if I believe that everlasting life is found in him, then the Bible should mean everything to me. It should be my basis for morality, for decision-making. Personal experience falls far diminished in light of what God has clearly laid out for us. It doesn't mean personal experience is not important. There are moments when God speaks to us personally, but if it's not in line with scripture, then it's not from the Lord. Because again, we have to start there. We've got to make a decision. 
Is what the Bible preaches true? And if so, I can't cut out certain verses I don't like. I can't pull portions of Scripture that don't fit my ideology that I already have predisposed, even though my ideology should be fit on Scripture and built on that. We can't just say, well, I don't like what it says about uh, marriage in this realm. I don't like that it sort of promotes a, a leadership structure in the home that I don't really like in this realm. I don't really like what it has to say about sexuality in this realm. I don't really like what it has to say about all these different things. If you start cherry-picking verses out of the Bible, what's the end to that? There is no end. Logic will continue to basically say that if you can do that with one verse, why can't you do it with all verses? So we have to recognize that though sometimes the Bible is inherently offensive, there are times that I'm reading and I'm like, God, that kind of stings. Good. It's a double-edged sword. The Word of God is meant to do that, to love you and yet convict you at the same time. And how beautiful is that? What happens when the church has equated personal experience with biblical truths? Well, they'll start elevating non-Christian voices. That's something we've heard a lot over the last month is we need to just be silent and elevate these other voices. Some of those voices that we've heard are completely antithetical to Scripture. I've seen prominent celebrity Hollywood pastors say we should elevate voices like Sean King and Louis Farrakhan, Al Sharpton, people that have totally Marxist beliefs about the world, that actually, if you got down to the moral foundations of their belief systems, want nothing to do with Jesus and the kingdom he describes in the Gospels. So there's been so much emphasis on these pastors elevating these voices in culture that stand against biblical truths, that stand against the nuclear family, that stand against God's design for marriage, that stand against God's design for personal responsibility and individual responsibility, and instead embrace a collectivist mindset. When pastors are actually called right now in times of crisis more than ever to stand up, speak the truth, say that we each have an individual responsibility to seek the Lord. That I can't designate sins by a collective society like cultures tried to. So instead of saying, hey, have you dealt with prejudice in your life? Have you been a perpetrator of sinful racism? If so, you need to repent. Instead of doing that, they've said, let's all check our privilege. We're all racist somehow. We just have to find it. It's, it's not biblical. We've seen these about all these different issues over the last few weeks. Fourth observation is this. The church has allowed its compassion to be taken advantage of. So we've seen this, and I've actually touched on this in past episodes, how the enemy, the adversary, will utilize and try to distort our compassion to embrace movements that are actually completely antithetical to the gospel. So we see this with Black Lives Matter. We've talked about this where, uh, you know, culture will ask us, well, don't you care about black lives? Of course we do. Don't you want justice to be served? Of course we do. Well, then Black Lives Matter, disintegrate the nuclear family, stand up for trans, queer, appreciation, all these different things. Marxist values. We're like, wait a second, that's, that's not what I want to sign up for. Well, then you're, you're not really being an anti-racist. Same thing with the Me Too movement. We've talked about this. Don't you want women to be able to speak truth about the abuses that they faced? Of course we do. Justice should always be served in realms like that. And we want to create a space where women are able to speak up. Well, then believe women all the time. Wait a second. I can't throw false accusations without testing them. Well, then you're being a sexist and a part of the problem. It's this, it's this society in which we're basically, as a church, backed into a corner and said, well, if you want justice, then you have to do these things. You have to vote this way, talk this way, hashtag this thing, post this thing on Instagram. And it's just not biblical. The Bible is our morality. We cannot allow our compassion to be taken advantage of. Our compassion being taken advantage of has led to distorted beliefs about Scripture. The world has tried to attempt to uh, switch 
foundational pieces of scripture and stories to create this social justice narrative. Luke 15, something I've seen going around a ton in Christian circles is the story about the lost sheep. And Luke 15 talks about how if there are 99 sheep that are found, and then there's one sheep that goes astray, Jesus will leave the 99 to go for the one. It's a beautiful piece of scripture, a beautiful parable to describe what God does for those that are lost. Here's what the social justice movement has tried to spin it to this last month. They've tried to say, well, the 99 are the all lives matter people. Those are the white people. Those are the well off, the 1%. And the one sheep that's astray is the minority, the black person, the low income person. Now, this sounds enlightening and, oh my goodness, what a cool way to view that scripture. But the problem is that's not at all the point of the verse. Taking the real point of that verse, which is to describe when the Pharisees were pushing Jesus about why he hung out with certain groups of people that were lost in their eyes, that were not uh, religious people, his response was meant to discuss what the lengths God will go to to save those that are lost. So if there are 99 minorities, people of color that are oppressed by whatever societal oppressors are oppressing them in that moment, but they know the Lord and they are found and they are content in him. And then there's one that's a wealthy white business owner that does not know the Lord. Guess who Jesus is going after? He's going after that one, the wealthy white business owner. He's not going after the 99. Why? Because they know him. Then same thing is true if it's 99 white wealthy business people and one person of color. Uh, if the 99 know the Lord, but the one does not, well then, yeah, that, that works. But to say that this is about race and color and that was supposed to talk about those that are oppressed and the minorities in our society, that was not the point of the verse. The point of the verse of Luke 15 is that God is always going after the one that is lost. It's his desire that none would perish, but all would have eternal life. How does he do that? He's got to go after the one that's lost. He came not to be a, uh, a, just an encouragement for those that are already found, but a hospital for the sick, a refuge for those that are lost. So it's important that we don't let our compassion be taken advantage of to skew this different worldview and allow our mindsets and our, uh, the truth we know about Scripture to be distorted. So where do we go from here? I know I've covered a lot. And I'm flying through a lot of this because it is a lot of information. First, I want to say this. We can't be afraid to look different than the world. All throughout the scriptures, we are promised that we would face persecution. First Peter 3 says that we will literally suffer for doing good. We shouldn't be afraid of this. We shouldn't be afraid to look different than the world. Sometimes in our modern Christianity, we've gotten really comfortable with our lattes and our coffee shops and our Bible studies that we've kind of forgotten that Christian values actually stand opposed to much of culture. We've forgotten the reality of 1 John 5, 19 that says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So if you are in Christ, you're in God. If you're not in Christ and you're with the world, well, the world lies under the wicked one. We've forgotten that sometimes because our lives get really comfortable and cushy. And so it's important we recognize that it's actually the norm, and it was for the early church fathers certainly, to be oppressed to face persecution for wanting to do good, for being falsely accused of things because of your faith in Christ. That's a norm, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. We should be able to speak the truth all the time. We should be able to stand up for racial justice in all forms, against police brutality, against abortion, against fatherlessness in the United States, against all these different issues that perpetuate the problems, not just pick and choose what things we're willing to speak out about because it's culturally popular to do so. 
We can't be afraid to look different than the world. And I pray that today there's a new courage that you feel, a boldness to say, you know what, I do look different than the world. And that's actually the point. This is not a time for lukewarm Christianity. This is a time for Christians to wake up and realize it's time to make a choice. Who am I living for? Am I living for the cultural gospel that sways with the tides of the world and I follow Jesus when it lines with culture and makes me cool and gets me Instagram followers? Or am I actually going to realize that I may be persecuted because of my beliefs, but that doesn't matter. I'm standing strong. Jesus talks so much about he'd rather have you cold than even lukewarm because lukewarm is a dangerous spot. We're swayed by the world and then we actually have the potential to sway others when we're in that spot as well. We believe a lot of distorted mindsets. Second thing, an informed church is a powerful church, a church that is seeking truth, the reality of the gospel, not just the parts that make them comfortable. That is a powerful church. That's a church that the Lord will use to change the world because their love is not just in word, but it's also in deed, that their faith is acted out upon, not just when it's comfortable, but when it's uncomfortable. If there's issues that you want to talk about in church that you have questions on, you should be able to go to your pastor, go to your leader and share those things. Ask those questions respectfully, of course, in honor of the position that they hold, but saying, hey, I'm not hearing this topic discussed, and I think it'd be really important for us to discuss this. Can we please? Again, it's always important to do that politely, but it's important that we're pursuing truth now more than ever because secularism, the religion of secularism, is attempting to encroach its way upon Christianity, and it's actually doing a good job of it in a lot of ways. Many, many, many people in our country, are moving from a, yeah, I believe in Jesus, to, well, I'm spiritual. I believe in something. They don't like all the tenets of the faith, so they pick and choose what they want. And true believers in Christianity, we cannot fall into that. So an informed church is a powerful church. It's important to do our research. It's important to seek truth. It's important to not uh, despise theology. It's important to not run away from anything that makes our ears uncomfortable. It's actually important to press into that, to those pieces of the gospel or the pieces of the scriptures that offend us. It's really important because in that place is a beautiful sense of conviction where we're able to come face to face with the reality that we don't know it all and that our way is not the highway. Our way is not the righteous way. But the Lord has a better way for us. And when we can choose that and follow that, we're actually led into more life, even if it stands countercultural, which it often will, as we've been told. Final thing I want to say this is this. John 16, 33. Why can we be hopeful? Well, because Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. We talked about in 1 John 5 that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, but Jesus has actually come, like he said in John 16, to overcome that world. And for anybody that would put their trust in him, they get to have eternal life, knowing that this world is actually not our home. We pass on to a better place where we no longer toil with the deceptive nature of the enemy and the sway of the wicked one. But instead, we've held fast to the promises of Scripture, to the promises of the Lord, and we get to rejoice with Him and the fellowship of Him and the communion of believers. And we get to spend our time here on earth not shying away from the persecution, but pressing into it if it means that we're standing for truth and inviting as many people into that truth as we possibly can. Finally, I'll say this. If all of this to you was a bit foreign— If you are one of those people that say, I just don't know about any of this. I don't know if I believe any of this. I know that today has been very theological and faith-based in nature. I encourage you to ask this question. Who am I living for? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? 
What is my emphasis and my reason for being? Why am I here? And then I would implore you to open up the book of John and just start reading. See what Jesus has to say about why we're here, why he created us, why we're designed in the image of God for a glorious purpose unto him and the advancing of his kingdom. I invite you to do that. And please send me questions. Please engage with this content. If you have questions about what I shared or you want to hear more, I know that this is refining politics and culture, but it's important that we talk about this this reality of, of my beliefs and the faith that I hold dear because I believe that it is the backbone. It's the foundation of all the different ways in which I perceive the world, and uh, I believe that it is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So with all that being said, I would love to engage in this conversation with you if you have further questions about this. In fact, speaking of questions, I was hoping we'd get time to do a Q&A today, but I'm going to have to push it back uh, because I wanted to ensure that this topic was able to be given uh, what it fully merited, which was a really in-depth conversation. And so I hope this was a blessing to you. Really looking forward to speaking with you on Thursday. We have an exciting episode uh, with a really intriguing topic. So looking forward to getting to that. Please continue to share this content with your friends, family, on your social media pages. Please continue to uh, offer positive reviews on Apple if you haven't already. Subscribe to the show on Apple. Follow us on Spotify and continue to engage with social media with me on Instagram at CycleMyfert and on my website as well. Looking forward to speaking with you all Thursday. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.